Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Hebrews for the last several weeks, and we have made our way to the last half of the second chapter. The book of Hebrews is, uh, as we've discussed before, we'll kind of catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us. Uh, there is no author identified, or the author, we should say the author does not identify himself for the book of Hebrews. It's the only thing in the New Testament uh, that we have that is not, where the author does not identify himself. But we have some, uh, some hints as to, the, at least hints that satisfy me. It may not satisfy everybody, and there's a lot of discussion and argument in, in uh, theological circles and, and um, you know, uh, places like Bible schools where people don't really do anything. They just talk about God. Uh, but in, uh, in, those, uh, in those circles, there are, um, there's a lot of discussion. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I believe one reason, uh, there are many, many reasons why I believe so. We'll see some of them tonight. But um, uh, one reason is because he said in his letter to the Galatians where he wrote to the church in Galatia, the Gentile church in Galatia, predominantly Gentile church in Galatia, where their problems were that the Jews had come from Jerusalem and tried to uproot the work that he had done by, uh, by imposing the law of Moses upon the church. And uh, in, in that context, he's trying to re, uh, rebut or um, uh, overcome the teaching of the Jews, which would be the very ones that this letter was written to, in, uh, in his arguments to the Gentiles. And then to the Gentiles or to the Galatian church, he says, you see what a large letter I've written with my own hand. Well, Galatians is six chapters. It's not as long as Romans. It's not as long as Corinthians, either of the Corinthian letters. It's, it's hardly as long as the, uh, as the book of Ephesians. When, uh, when you come down to the, the number of words and, and that type of thing. So there must have been something else to the letter that he wrote to the Galatians for him to say that it was a large or a long letter. The earliest manuscripts that we have, collections of all the letters, and you realize not every church had every letter. They were passed around uh, from place to place as much as possible and, and um, uh, you know, as, as it was appropriate. But the earliest collection of all the letters that we have, which would be the earliest collection of anything that resembles a Bible, that we're talking about in the early days of the church showed the book of Hebrews directly following the book of Galatians. As such, the book of Galatians is dealing with the same, or the book of Hebrews rather, is dealing with very much the same thing that the book of Galatians is, only from the other side. Galatians were written to, was written to the Gentile church to show them why what the Jews were saying was wrong. It's, the book of Hebrews is written to the Jews showing them why Jesus is the Christ. So, Paul talks about several things, and, and I'll, uh, just for the sake of um, uh, brevity, I'll say from time to time, Paul said this. I believe it was Paul, if, I, if I'm wrong, as I've said before, the Lord can straighten me out when I get to heaven. But um, uh, Paul is dealing with Jesus being better than everything in the, uh, the law of Moses. He starts off in chapters 1 and 2 about talking about how Jesus was better than the angels. Now, in chapter 2, the, the last half of chapter 2... Um, is really, from Paul's perspective, ties everything together. It establishes the foundation for everything that he's going to write afterwards, and it ties up the things that he said before. Now, you need to realize that from a Jewish perspective, when Paul talk, starts talking about Jesus being uh, superior or better than the angels, to the Jewish mind, that can't possibly be true. Because in their thinking and in their mind, and based on the Old Testament Scriptures and their understanding of them, in the Jewish mind... Angels are right there with God. They're both spirit beings. They're both powerful. Uh, nobody knows how powerful the angels are. We assume that God is more powerful than the angels, but the angels are his agents to do everything that there is. So there's no way that someone could come to the earth 
and be greater than the angels. So Paul has to address that. He identifies specifically Jesus' humanity. Remember that, um, uh, well, Jesus was both all God and all man. That's why we call him, the Bible refers to him as Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name for humanity. Christ is the name for deity. Now, if um, I'm going to re- read something to you. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse, um, I think it's about verse 13. I'll tell you when I get there. Paul identifies in his letter, and this is, um, uh, this is one of the reasons why we believe that, uh, well, I believe at least, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul is writing to the Gentile churches, several of the different letters to the Gentile churches, and, and the Jews were a problem everywhere he went. The Jews were the ones that stirred up troubles. The Jews were the ones that had him beaten and stoned. And, and I mean, he ran into trouble with the Jews everywhere that he went. And so Paul addresses many things about the Jews and their belief in the law of Moses and so forth to the Gentile church. Notice what he wrote to the, to the Corinthians about the Jews. He said, we'll start reading in verse um, 22. It said, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks or the Gentiles seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now he's speaking specifically here. When, when Paul uses the word Christ or the name Christ, he's talking about deity. When he uses the name Jesus, he's talking about humanity. There are times where he talks about Jesus Christ, talking about both humanity and deity together. But Paul is very specific. As we said before, Paul has the same training as the high priest. So when Paul talks about Christ writing to the church by the Holy Ghost, he means specifically the deity of Jesus. So he said, but we preach Christ crucified. Now notice what he says about that preaching. We take that just to mean Jesus went to the cross. Okay, well, we accept that. It means more to Paul and it means more than that to the Jews. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. And here's the result of that. Under the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And under the Greeks, it's foolishness. Now, with that in mind, I mean, you would well understand that the book of Hebrews, since it was written after the book, the letter that was written to the Corinthians, things haven't changed. If it was Christ crucified, if the preaching of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews when he wrote to the Corinthians, it's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews when he writes to the Jews. And Paul knows this. Paul knows what the resistance is. He knows what the hindrance is. He knows what keeps the Jews from getting saved. And it's that Christ, the preaching that Christ was crucified. And here's the problem for the Jews. Those that came up under the law of Moses, those that are adherents to and followers of the law of Moses, they understood that there was a Messiah that was promised. That Messiah that was promised could not be God if he dies. Because God can't die. That's why Paul emphasizes Jesus' humanity, not so much his deity. He does identify his deity, but he focuses on his humanity. Because in the Jews thinking, God can't die, Jesus died, therefore Jesus can't be God. And that's what Paul has to overcome. And it's in in many ways, he never did overcome that in his ministry. It was that teaching, it was that refusal to accept that Jesus was God. Remember, that's what the Jews wanted to kill him for in Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, they took up stones to kill him because they said, you're making yourself equal with God. Well... Okay, we don't have a problem with that because we accept Jesus was God. They had a big problem with that because they refused to accept that. They refused to accept that any man could be God. You could be sent from God. You could be used by God. The the prophets were. The Old Testament uh, fathers were. Even the angels were. 
High priests were. He's going to talk about Melchizedek further on in the book. He was sent of God. He was used of God. But you can't be God. And that's what makes the difference between Christianity and every other religion, every other doctrine, every other ism, every other belief on the face of the earth. Nothing on the face of the earth claims that there was a God, that, that God came to the earth to become a man and then brought you into his class of being as a result. Everything else is about after this life is over, we attain a higher plane or consciousness or whatever in the world they think is going to happen. As you float around like a cloud in the rest of the, for the rest of eternity. I don't know. I'm not real sure on their thoughts. But nothing else but Christianity changes a man to bring him into God's class. Not just God's class as, be, as far as being a spirit, but God's class of the resurrected Jesus. So, how does Paul address these things? Paul starts talking about in chapter, or chapter uh, 2, verse 8, he talks about how one of the angels said. Here's why Jesus is better than the angels. One of the angels said. About man, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He quotes Psalm 8, 2. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. What's the first thing that Paul does when he talks about the superiority of God, of Jesus over angels? He shows that man's original, or God's original plan was for man to be over the angels. Because the word that he uses that's translated here in the King James angels, Psalm 8, if you go back to the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. It literally means the angels are saying, who is this thing called man? Or what is this thing called man? That you would make him low, a little lower than yourself and give unto him dominion, crown him with glory and honor and do, give him dominion over the works of your hands. Paul identifies from the Old Testament. They can't argue with the Old Testament. That's what they say counts. Paul's arguing from the Old Testament, God's original plan was for man to be over angels. He identifies in chapter 1 that the angels are just ministering spirits to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Well, those are men, aren't they? So he identifies that God's original plan was God, man, and angels. Not the other way around. Not God, angels, and man. So he shoots that out completely. He identifies that God's plan was to exalt man and put everything under his feet. And that's what's the way it's going to be in the millennium. Jesus is going to rule over the earth with a rod of iron, and you and I are going to rule under him. And the angels are going to be our servants when we do it. Not the other way around. Not the angels ruling on behalf of God and man being their servants. So he shoots down their theory about what angels are like to begin with. So he says from Psalm 8, he says, we see that God's plan was to put everything under man's feet. Everything under man's feet. Now man messed that up when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. Man messed that up, but that was God's original plan. So what do we do? Let's start here in verse uh, 9. It says, but we see Jesus. We don't see everything yet under man's feet, but we do see Jesus. Notice he calls him Jesus and not Christ. He's talking about Jesus the man. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. This little lower means for a little while, for a little while. Now, folks, in one sense, in one context, we are lower than the angels. But we have to assume that this word angels is the same thing that was referred to in Psalm 8, verse 2, where instead of being angels, it's 2,400 times in the Old Testament, it's, it's uh, translated God. So it says, for a little while, Jesus was made be below God. Now, what is that talking about? Well, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be a man. In other words, he didn't stop being God, but he stopped being the all-powerful, omnipotent creator of the world. He set aside that earth-creating power. 
He set aside that glory as one of the Trinity and came to the earth, emptied himself and came to the earth to be a man. Now, Paul's going to identify why that is as he goes. He said, so we see Jesus who was for a little while made lower than the angels or lower than the Godhead for, notice it's for, here's going to give the reason, for the suffering of death. Now, folks, this pierces the very heart of the Jews' objections because he can't be God and die in their thinking. So what does he say? He says, Jesus was made a little lower than God or the Godhead, the God that sits on the throne in heaven. He made himself a little lower than the Godhead for the suffering of death. So what is he doing? He's answering their objection. He's saying, okay, I understand where you're coming from. God on the throne can't die. Yeah, no question. No argument there. But Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, his divine power and glory, and he came to the earth to become a man so that he could suffer death. Now, the Jews understood that the Messiah would be taking the price of death. But uh, apparently the Jews had some idea, and I'm not real clear on this. I don't know that anybody would ever really say this because you can't find Christians that will admit to it either. But there seems to be a similar theory or, or idea that mankind has about Jesus as far as his death was concerned. Maybe if Jesus had died on the cross or gone to the cross or suffered penalty and suffered punishment and all of a sudden come down from the cross, you remember that's what some of the ones said, that's what one of the thieves said. Why don't you come down? If you're, if you're really who you say you are, why don't you come down from the cross? Jesus said, I could call the angels and do that. I could have a legion or ten legions, whatever it was. I could have a whole bunch of angels come get me down from here. But that's not the purpose that I came. I came for the suffering of death. I think a lot of times people, uh, Christians, misunderstand righteousness because they think that Jesus died, you know, spent three days, you know, doing whatever until the resurrection could be accomplished, until the time could be fulfilled, and then came back and that was it. And that's not what happened at all. Jesus came for one and only one purpose, and that was to suffer death. Now, let me ask you a question. If physical death is all that's necessary to pay the price, why wouldn't man just go to heaven as soon as he dies physically? Why would there need to be any change of heart? I mean, if the price for sins is physical death, if that's the suffering of death that's necessary, then why would not everybody be in heaven as soon as they die? If I sin and I have to pay the price for my own sin and that price is physical death and as soon as I die physically, the price is paid, I can go to heaven. Why didn't it work that way? We know it doesn't. The Jews knew it didn't. The Jews knew that it wasn't just physical death. The Jews knew that it was adherence to God's commandments that was the necessary ingredient to bring about eternal life or, or a home in heaven. Why? If death is the issue, why is there anything else needed besides physical death? Because the death that's necessary is not physical death, it's spiritual death. Now, folks, I know it's a controversial subject, and I know a lot of people in the body of Christ will get really uptight about the notion that Jesus died spiritually. And here's why they get uptight about it. Because their thinking, their thinking in the spiritual sense is the same as the Jews thinking about Jesus or Christ being able to die in the physical sense. It's the same thing. The devil will keep you out of, rob you out of the blessings of God, whether it's thinking physically or thinking spiritually. He doesn't care. Because if the Jews don't understand that Jesus came to the earth as Christ to die, then they miss out on heaven. 
If a believer, a Christian, doesn't accept that spiritual death was the necessary price, then they miss out on the blessings or the fruits of righteousness in their life. See, folks, you're only as redeemed as the punishment that Jesus paid for. That's why for so many people, their righteousness is something like this cloak, this we don't know how it works, and and we know the Bible says our righteousness is, is as filthy rags. So, you know, God says we're righteous, but we know we're really not. And they never conquer sin in their lives. Because it takes, it's necessary, it's critical to understand that spiritual death is the price for sin. And that's what Jesus came to the earth for. That's why he emptied himself of heavenly, his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth to die spiritually. That means if Jesus paid the price as a spiritually dead man, he had to go to hell. I understand a lot of people don't want to accept that. And the reason they don't want to accept that is because they think, just like the Jews thought, God can't die physically, they think God, Jesus, can't die spiritually. But that's what the Bible says that he came for. It's what the Bible says the whole thing was about. So Paul hits him right between the eyes. He says, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the Godhead for the suffering of death, not just any old death, a torturous death. He didn't, he's not talking about an experience of death. He's talking about a suffering death. He's not talking just about pain and punishment. He's talking about the torture of the punishment of God that happened when he was in hell. That's what this refers to. So he says, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. When was he crowned with glory and the honor? Well, we know he was crowned with glory and honor when he was raised. But is that what he's talking about? No, he's saying Jesus who is fulfilling God's original plan for man when he came to the earth, emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory, came to the earth so that he could suffer death for mankind, or the ones at least he's going to refer to, so that he could suffer death. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor here on the earth, and that's why he did the stuff that he did. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of man's role in Psalm 8 that you Jews know very well. He's talking about his earthly his time on the earth. He's talking about his humanity. He was crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death, experience death, experience death. Again, this is the issue for the Jews. He can't be God and die. He can as a man. He can if he empties himself of his heavenly power and glory and becomes a man. And that's what all of the rest of the chapter is about. That he must taste death for every man. Now, the, the every man is a, uh, the word man's not in this verse. It's a word that literally means everyone. But who's the everyone that he's talking about? Well, the everyone that he's talking about is not all of mankind. He didn't, Jesus didn't taste death for all of mankind because the implication is, and the wording says that whoever he tasted death for won't have to taste death for themselves. Well, if somebody dies without making Jesus the Lord of their lives, they taste death for themselves. They experience death for themselves, don't they? So who's the every man that he's talking about? He's talking about everyone that accepts Jesus. He's telling the Jews, this doesn't necessarily belong to you. Because he refers to certain ones. He refers in chapter 1, verse 14, as heirs of salvation. He refers in chapter 2, verse 10, as uh, the sons. He refers to in chapter 2, verse 11, the brethren. 
In other words, he's saying Jesus tastes death for every man that will receive him. Not for every man on the earth. Now, potentially it belongs to everyone. Or we should say potentially it can belong to everyone. But it doesn't automatically. Jesus died for the sins of the world. But the only ones that he tasted death for are the ones that receive him as Lord and Savior personally. That's who he's talking about. So he tasted death for everyone that receives him. The heirs of salvation, the sons and the brethren. For it became him. Notice verse 10. The word became is huge. Because the word became literally means this. It means suited to or appropriate for the character of God. Everything about the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about the character of God and God's plan and how God works things out, not how man works things out. See, most people think that if a person dies, for example, if, uh, if a crime is committed, somebody's murdered. If someone is tried and convicted for that, then human government is satisfied. They're penalized whether they go to jail, whether they, whether they're executed. It doesn't matter whether they're guilty or innocent. As far as the government is concerned, someone was convicted, the price has been paid. Innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. That price has been paid. It doesn't work that way in God's economy. You can't just have an innocent man pay the price for a guilty man and it work. Because there's something about redemption in the Old Testament and the picture that the Old Testament gives us about redemption that is first and foremost of utmost importance and that is you can't redeem someone you're not related to. You have to be a kinsman in order to redeem someone. Redeem them financially. Redeem them physically. You get somebody in your family that's in trouble, you can go and redeem them. But if you see somebody that's in debtor's prison and you're not a family member, you can't redeem them. You can give somebody money, but that doesn't mean they have to let them go. You can give their debtors money to pay for them, but that doesn't mean they have to let them go. Unless you're a relative, unless you're a family member, a kinsman. That's what redemption is based on. That's the picture of redemption in the Old Testament. So here where it talks about what becomes Jesus... It's talking about what's appropriate for the character and the nature of God. So it says, for it became him. For whom all things are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory. In other words, here's what was appropriate for the character and the nature of God. To bring many sons into glory. He's saying the whole thing. You guys are so wrapped up on whether or not God can die. The whole thing was about bringing sons into glory. The word glory is a real difficult word to define. You can, you can look in different translations and different uh, uh, definitions and even different concordances will give you different meanings for the word. It's real hard to put your finger on. Maybe the best uh, summary that we could give or the best uh, definition we could give, in this case at least, is excellent, excellency, the sum of excellency. It's saying that God's original purpose, God's character and nature, was to lift sons into excellency. Well, why does he need to lift them there? Because sin had dragged them down. So it says it became him. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. We saw that Jesus created the world, created everything for himself. In bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, a lot of people have trouble with this verse. First of all, the word captain is translated several different things in the, uh, uh, throughout the New Testament. It's the word that's translated, uh, author in chapter three and verse one. Jesus is the author. Uh, uh, well, I lost the verse. What is it? Um, I'm sorry. In chapter 12, verse one, consider Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. 
I'm giving you the wrong reference. But anyway, that's the word that's used here. The word captain is, uh, is translated prince in other places in the New Testament. It's used several different times, and it's translated different things. It's kind of a tough word for us to, to, uh, to, to nail down, to put our finger on. But you have to remember the reason that this, uh, or understand, please, that the reason that it's translated captain here is because captains didn't work in the military then like they do now. Captains didn't sit back at headquarters and give orders and then sergeants and other guys went out and carried out the grunt work and, and you know, went out against the enemy. In Paul's day, captains were the ones that led their armies into battle. And as a result, their, their, their intent or the reason that they made this high rank of captain was because they had proved themselves in valorous deeds and they were supposed to go out before their, their, uh, the, the men that were with them that they were in charge of to inspire them to do valorous things, acts of valor, by their own acts of valor in battle themselves. So it's saying Jesus is the forerunner. It's saying Jesus went before us in front of us and set the example for us. So it says it became him. Here was what the, the character and the nature of God in this situation was. To bring many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now hold your finger here and look with me over to, to uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. How is it that Jesus' sufferings made him perfect? See, we think in a natural context, and we think, well, okay, that means he learned to obey. But didn't Jesus obey before he went to the cross? Isn't everything Jesus did a a result of his obedience to God? Didn't he say himself, I only do what the Father does, I only say what the Father tells me to say? Isn't he operating in obedience all of his life, and that's the whole reason why he's sinless? He didn't learn obedience or learn to obey by going to the cross, by suffering. What he learned was the, the, uh, he learned obedience by experience. For example, think of it like this. And this may be a crude illustration, but it's the closest thing that I know that we can get to, to explaining it. I've experienced a lot of things in life that I don't want my son to experience or my daughter either. Isn't that true for you? But there are other things that I've experienced in life that have built character in me that they're going to have to experience, even though some of those experiences of mine and the things that I learned came through real hard places. And so there are some things that I can tell them. I can relate my experience. I can tell them through hard times and, and, and places where I didn't have two nickels to rub together. And here's, I uh, believed God. And, and here's how it worked. And here's what I did. And, and here's the things that I did naturally. Here's the work that I did. Here's, here's whatever. You know the point I'm trying to get to. Well, that's a great story, but character doesn't come by hearing stories. If they're going to get the same thing that I got, they're going to have to have the same experiences that I got. Now, they knew ahead of time, and they may have obeyed in other areas, and they may have followed my stories and followed my example and so forth, but there are some things that you can only get by going through. That's what this is talking about. Jesus experienced obedience by holding steady all the way to the end. It wasn't something he didn't know but it was something that God had never experienced. So it's not making him something. It's him showing his faithfulness through something. Verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they that who are sanctified are all of one. 
For which cause he is not ashamed to call us brethren. This phrase, all of one, is really, really important. Because it very simply means this. It means together, but in quality, not in unity. Again, let me give you an example. You can have a married Christian, you can have a Christian married to an unbeliever. The Bible tells you not to do that. But if you've got a Christian married to an unbeliever, they're united in marriage. They're not of the same quality. They're not of the same character. They're not of the same nature. And they're going to have problems in their marriage. This is true in any kind of relationship to where you attach yourself or to the degree to which you attach yourself to an unbeliever, business or whatever. Now, some people go to extremes and say, if somebody's not a Christian, I don't want to do business with them. Well, folks, I want to take money from people that aren't Christians. I didn't say steal. But if I'm doing business with somebody... You know, if I've got a business, now it's a little different for me being a pastor, but if I've got a business, why would I not want to do business with people that are unbelievers? I'll be just as good to unbelievers as I am to Christians. So there's always a, there's always a fine line. There's always a, a boundary in any relationship that you have. The difference between your good friends and your acquaintances are the boundaries of your friendship. Well, that's a boundary of a relationship. You can have boundaries of every relationship. That's what everything is about. The closeness you have with somebody is based on the boundaries you've set. And we've all made mistakes there. We've gotten close with people we shouldn't have. Well, that's the way it is with believers and unbelievers. You get too close to an unbeliever because you're not of the same character. You're not of the same nature. It's going to burn you. Here he's talking about character and nature. He's not talking about united. He's not talking about unity. He's talking about character and nature. And notice what he says. He says, both he that sanctifieth and he that is sanctified are of the same quality or the same character, the same nature. Now, remember what we're talking about to begin with. It became Jesus. It was appropriate for the character and the nature of God for God to sanctify those who are of his nature. And for that reason, he's not ashamed to call you brethren. Now, folks, if you stop and meditate on what Paul is saying, now, this is not his intent. This is not what he's trying to get across to the Jews. But the principle is true. So if you meditate on what he's saying, there's no reason for you and I to ever feel unworthy or that God wouldn't do something for us. We're of the same character. We're of the same nature. And for that reason, it says he's not ashamed of you. It says he's not ashamed for you to be his brethren. Why do we agonize over whether God will do something that the Bible says very clearly that it'll do? Well, because we get to thinking about Jesus is way up here and we're way down here. Not so. Jesus is way up here and you're right up here beside him. So he's talking about all of one. Now, this is true where life is concerned. We could talk a lot. We could spend the rest of the time and, and several weeks on talking about we're the same character, the same nature of God. So the same blessings of Jesus are ours. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We're of the same character and nature. We can have the same spirit within us. We can do the same works as Jesus did. We can walk in the same blessings that Jesus did. All the things that Jesus purchased for us on the cross are ours. We can talk about all the, 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 the blessings and the benefits of being of the same character and the same nature, the same quality all of one. But that's really not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about we're all of one in the death of the cross. He's talking about how that Jesus, he's not talking about raising man up. He's talking about Jesus having come down to become one of us. Because that's the point that the Jews stumble over. God can't die. So he's explaining, here's how God can die. He had to come 
It became him. It was appropriate for the character and the nature of God to come to the earth to become like us, to become one with us. Not raising us up. That happens after the resurrection. That happens after Jesus gains the victory. He's talking about when Jesus came to the earth to become like you. Now, how do we know he's not ashamed to call us brethren? Because he says, he quotes from Psalm 22, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. The, the word church here is, is, this is exactly the way that it's uh, translated in the Septuagint, which is the, the verse that Paul is referring to, quoting from. In the, the original Hebrew, it's the word congregation. Now, this 22nd Psalm, if you know anything about the Bible and how it's written, the 22nd Psalm is the, is the Messiah on the cross. It talks about all the, the suffering and all the terrible things that, that will take place where his bones are out of joint and, and people are gaping around him and, and, and saying to him, you know, you trusted in God, let's see what happens. It's talking about the suffering of the cross. And that's the, real, that's the, uh, the reference that Paul uses talking about Jesus. So we know that he's talking about being one with us in his death, dying as man. Again, he's addressing the number one issue, the biggest problem the Jews have with Jesus. So he, he quotes Psalm 22. He says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now let me ask you a question. Does that not presuppose resurrection? When he says, I will, I will uh, how does it say it? I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Is he talking about to the spiritually dead? She's saying, I'll, I'll declare the name of God to the spiritually dead? No. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the victory. He's talking about resurrection. It presupposes that since Jesus came to be one with us in death, then he raises us up as he declares the name of God to his brethren. And notice it doesn't show Jesus as the Lord of the church, lording over and controlling everybody. It speaks of Jesus in the midst of the congregation or the church. He's right here in the middle with us. And that's the point he's trying to make. Jesus, in his resurrected condition, is still one with us. We're still of the same character. We're still of the same quality. Always were, really, from the time that he came. And then he refers to another one, another verse of Scripture in uh, Isaiah 8. He says in verse 13, and again, and in other words, it says, and again, there's a reference. I will put my trust in him, and again, meaning it goes further to say, Behold, I am the children which God has given me. He's identifying God who poured himself out to become man with mankind. Now, let me read some things to you from Isaiah chapter 8. And I'm going to read to you from the Septuagint because that's what Paul's re uh, quoting from. There's a lot of different places that refer to Jesus and speak prophetically of Jesus trusting in him. So how do we know which one he's talking about? There's a lot of places where it speaks of uh, and at least could apply to Jesus, where it says, I will put my trust in him, I will trust only in him, and, and so forth. So how do we know which one he's talking about? He doesn't tell us what reference it is. How do we know which one he's talking about? The reason we know which one he's talking about is the the last part where it says, uh, how does it refer to it? It says, uh, and again, behold, I am thy children which God has given me. That tells us that he's talking about Isaiah 8. So let me read to you from Isaiah 8. The context is where it's speaking prophetically of Jesus, and it said, He shall be to thee for a sanctuary, talking about the congregation, talking about the church, God's plan for the church, and you shall not come against him as against a stumbling stone. 
Now in verse 17, And one shall say, I will wait for God who has turned away his face from the house of Jacob, and I will trust in him. That's the part that Paul quotes. I will trust in him. Verse 18, Behold, I and thy children, the children which God has given me, here's the last part of the verse, and they shall be for signs and wonders in the house of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. He's talking about united in character and quality. He's saying Jesus became like us. Literally, God, Christ, became like us. For as much, verse 14, for as much, then, in other words, he's going to wrap it up. He's saying since all these things are true, since he became like us, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. If he became like us, what did he become? Well, we're partakers of flesh and blood. Now, what is he talking about flesh and blood? He's talking about sinful man. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 7, uh, verse 11, I think it is. It says, wherefore, by one man's sin, death passed upon all men. Well, that's how you became a partaker of flesh and blood, the sin of flesh and blood. But Jesus didn't become a partaker of that. Notice how it says it. For as much then as, are, as men are partakers of the children of partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part. Notice the difference between partaking and took part. Took part indicates a voluntary condition, a voluntary action. He took part of flesh and blood. He didn't take part of sin. He took part of flesh and blood. Jesus never took part of sin. He was made sin. But he took part of flesh and blood. In other words, it's saying... Here's how God can die. He continues to prove the point to the Jews. Here's how God can die. He had to become partakers of flesh and blood because you can't redeem somebody you're not kinsman to. You have to be a kinsman. So that means he's got to become one like us, one in character, one in nature. So he became one in character and nature as he was flesh and blood. For as much then as the children of partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same flesh and blood that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now notice in verse 9 it says that he came, he was made a little lower than the Godhead for the suffering of death, so that he by the grace of God should taste death. Now he's talking about the same death. That through death, through his experience, through the suffering of death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. I'm going to read something to you from uh, John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to the uh, to the religious group, maybe some of the same Jews that Paul's writing to. We don't know. These were Jews in Jerusalem, and Paul's writing to the Jews that uh, the letter gets to Jerusalem. So it says in verse 44, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. The word murderer literally means manslayer. Folks, you need to understand something. The reason Satan kills, steals, and destroys is because he is a manslayer and always has been. Everything about what he does, everything he tempts you with, even the stuff that looks good for you to you and me and we're tempted to do it, is intended and designed to slay you, to rob you, to steal from you spiritually. In many cases, that spiritual penalty has an effect in our flesh. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Here where it talks about Je uh, where Jesus, through death, destroyed, 
him that had the power of death, and that is the devil, is talking about that he stripped him of power. He stripped him of the power of death. In other words, there is not one Christian, one human being on the face of the earth that's made Jesus the Lord of their lives that is compelled to sin. I know a lot of Christians say, oh, I couldn't help it. There's never been a Christian that couldn't help it. Because him that has the power of death, the devil who had the power of death, his power has been destroyed. It doesn't mean to annihilate. It means to lift away his power, to strip him from his power. He still exists. He can still talk in your ear. But he can't make you do anything. And he can't keep you from doing anything either. To what end did he do this? Verse 15, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This verse of Scripture really means a lot because the fear of death literally means, the, the phrase fear of death really means mankind knows, every, every man knows that there is a judgment, there is a penalty for sin. Everybody knows that. Even the ones that say, oh, I don't believe there in la- as there's an afterlife. You know why they don't want to believe there's an afterlife? Because they don't have to deal with judgment or penalty for sin. Now, the problem is this. If you focus on judgment, if you focus on the penalty for sin, then you're going to all your life be under this cloud of condemnation. That never has been God's plan. God's plan was to identify sin, Jesus pay for it, and then us be free from it. But it's that knowledge of the judgment that's necessary, the penalty that somebody's got to pay for sin. Everybody knows that. That's in the heart of every person. The Bible says so. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows there's right and wrong. And the only reason you'd know right from wrong is because you know there's a penalty for wrong. If all you knew was right, which was the condition of Adam Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, remember the tree they were commanded not to eat of? What was the name of the tree? A lot of people say the tree of good and evil. That's not it. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All they knew was good. It was the knowledge of evil that put them in bondage. Just like it is with you and me. And isn't that the thing the devil tries to beat you up with now? Here's where you fall short. Here's where you failed. Here's where you're not as good a Christian as you should be. And of course, everybody else has got it together except you. Right? We just don't measure up to anybody. Certainly we don't measure up to Jesus, but we don't even measure up to the people that we go to church with. Unless we find somebody that does something publicly wrong and we say, at least I'm not as bad as them. But that doesn't even fly for long, does it? Because what you really know is nobody found me out yet. It's so funny. Somebody will do something and it will become a public spectacle and people will just wag their tongues and just wag their heads and it will be like, I can't believe they did that. And all the time they're hoping, please God, don't let me be found out. May not be the same thing, but it'd be something else. It's the fear of death. It's the fear of judgment that keeps you in bondage. That's what Jesus came to lift. To deliver them. Notice deliver is what Jesus' purpose was. To deliver you from the knowledge, the concept, the idea that there's got to be some judgment for sin. Why? Because he paid the price. That's the final point Paul will make in this chapter. To deliver them who through fear of death, or the fear of judgment literally, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Here's how the devil keeps you from having what Jesus paid for. He keeps you in bondage. He can't rob you of what Jesus did. 
He keeps you in bondage through this fear of death. This constant, no, I don't measure up. I don't deserve. Well, God may have done this for somebody else, but I'm just not sure if he'll do it for me. Well, the reason he did it for somebody else is because he, they recognized that they were in his character and his quality of life. He'll do it for you because you're of the same character and the same quality. That's what it's based on. It's not based on what you do or what you don't do. It's based on who he made you. For verily, verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Notice it didn't say he took on him the seed of Adam. Why not? Because Jesus didn't die in this sense, in this context, Jesus didn't die for all of mankind. Potentially it belongs to him. But Jesus tasted death for only those that make him the Lord of their lives. Now I'm going to read to you from Galatians chapter 3. And again, here's a, in, in my thinking it would make perfect sense for Paul to say this if it was connected to the book that he, the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said, Not and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Then he goes on in verse 29 of Galatians 3 and says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. So it says, Jesus did not take upon him the nature of angels. He took upon him the seed of Abraham. In other words, the one that the promise was made. Not to all the children of the natural descendants of Abraham, but the promise was made to one which is called the seed of Abraham, not the seeds or children of Abraham. He makes that distinction. And notice what he compares it to. He said he didn't take upon him the, the nature of angels. Folks, I would submit to you that the angels were in very much the same condition as man, as fallen man. You had the angels, they're spirit beings. In that context, they were in God's class of being. You had Satan that rebelled, and a third of them fell. Two-thirds did not. Why didn't they have a Redeemer? Why does the Bible tell us about the fallen angels, how that those that left their first estate, that they're reserved in chains of darkness until the end? Where's their Redeemer? They don't have one. Why? Because God's original plan was for man to be above the angels, not below. That's why the angels are saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? We don't know when that was spoken, but if it was spoken at creation, that means the, the third of the angels had already fallen. Could it be that the angels are saying, well, what about the ones that, that, that fell, the ones that are in, reserved in chains under darkness? Aren't you going to do anything about them? Can't you get them back? But now you're putting all your efforts into this thing called man? What is man? You crown him with glory and honor? You make him the, the, give him dominion over the works of your hands? You visit him? Why not the angels? Paul, can you see that Paul is shooting the idea of the angels being above man and greater than man and superior to man? He's shooting the whole thing down. He's saying Jesus came taking upon him the seed of Abraham, not the nature of angels, not the seed of Adam, but there's still an elect. Now, you decide whether or not you're in that elect. You get into the, the idea of predestination. Folks, God has predestined all of mankind to be saved. So what do you think about predestination, Pastor Mike? I believe completely, wholeheartedly in predestination. The Bible says God has predestined all of mankind to be saved. It says it's the will of God for all men to be saved. That means all of them are predestined to be saved. Are they all going to be saved? Is every man going to be saved? Nope. 
Only the ones that choose to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. So what does the Bible say about those that choose? It says those are elect. Yeah, but isn't that God picking and choosing? Nope. God chose everybody. He's just waiting to see who's going to choose him. That's how predestination works, folks. We've used the example before. It's like God created a giant, or planned a giant party and invited everybody. But not everybody's going to show up. The invitation's out. He wants everybody to come. But not everybody's going to choose to attend. So he says, He verily took not on the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things. Folks, please notice that all things. Wherefore, in all things. That means your situation. That means the things that you think are tough. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him. Here's a a companion word to verse 10 where it talks about it became him. It was appropriate and suitable for the character and the nature of God. Because it was appropriate and suitable for the character and the nature of God, it behooved Jesus to be made like unto his brethren. He's He's explaining how that it was the character and the nature of God to become like man so he could save man. which is the key to accepting Jesus as your Redeemer. We think generally, sometimes we get saved by saying that, hearing preaching that Jesus was the Son of God and He died on the cross. So we think, okay, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross. That means we can just accept Him as our Lord and Savior. But the Jews go further. They dig deeper and they said, well, how can He die if He's God? We're not going to receive anybody that claims to be God because God can't die. So Paul is explaining Here's how he became God by emptying himself out. Or here's how he became man. Here's how God could die. So he says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The word reconciliation is a real poor translation here. It's literally the word propitiation. Now the word propitiation and the word reconciliation are connected. But let me explain the difference to you. Reconciliation is the peaceful result of propitiation. Propitiation means he paid the price. It means he took the punishment of sin upon himself. Propitiation means he paid the price. Reconciliation means we're now reconciled to God. We have a peaceful existence with God because that price was paid. So here where it says he became the propitiation, it means he paid the price. That's the death. And remember, death is the crux of everything as far as the Jews are concerned with Jesus. Christ crucified is the stumbling block for them. So he keeps explaining. He keeps talking about, here's what happened with his death. Here's why he came to the earth. That through death, or for the suffering of death, and by the grace of God he should taste death. Through death he destroyed him that had the power of of, uh, death, that is the devil, and delivered them that through fear of death. Then he talks about, making reconciliation for the sins of the people, literally making propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, meaning aid or relieve, them that are tempted. Now, folks, when Jesus took part, not was a partaker of flesh and blood, but when he took part of flesh and blood, he experienced the same thing that you and I do. He became man in everything that was apart from and... um, well, I don't really know what it said, apart from sin. For example, he suffered hunger. 
The Bible talked about how he fasted for 40 days and after 40 days he's hungry. Well, that's a, a, that came by him taking part of flesh and blood. God never suffers hunger. God said that to Job. He said, if I was hungry, what would I tell you? So what did he suffer? Well, he suffered pain. Hunger doesn't have anything to do with sin. Pain doesn't have anything to do with sin. Suffering, persecution doesn't have anything to do with sin. Jesus experienced everything that you and I can experience apart from sin. What does that mean? That means he was tempted in all points like we are. He knows what the temptation to do wrong is. He just doesn't know what the result of doing wrong is. He didn't experience that. He paid the price for all of man's sins, but he doesn't know personal sin. So when we go to him and we say, oh, Lord, we've messed up, he can't relate to our messing up. But he's a faithful and merciful high priest. Notice what he is pertaining to in things pertaining to God. He can't be a faithful and merciful high priest in things where you mess up. He can't, he doesn't, he can't relate to that. He never messed up. But the good news is he's a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God. Things pertaining to God has to do with forgiveness, not experiencing sin. His faithfulness, his mercy is about when you do mess up, that's his whole reason for being your high priest. If you never messed up, you would never need a high priest. When you do mess up, when we do go to him and say, now, now if, we, if we headed off ahead of time and in the middle of the temptation, we say, Lord, we're really being tempted here. Help me. Strengthen me. He's right there. He can relate to you. He's touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He knows what it's like to be tempted. But if we cross over to the dark side, if we fall, he can't relate to that. But that's where it kicks in with things pertaining to God. See, as a man, he can relate to your temptation. As God, he can relate to the mercy. Because his whole reason for coming was to re elevate you to his character and his nature. Become your character and nature first, and then elevate you in his resurrection to his character and his nature. Give you the Holy Spirit. Same spirit that's in you, that was in him, is now in you. Same power that was in him is now in you. And so he's there to keep you elevated. I guess what I'm saying is this, folks. The biggest, biggest waste of time in the earth is to feel bad about what you've done. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, shouldn't we feel bad about what we've done? Because feeling bad about what we've done will keep us from doing it again. Are you kidding me? You know as well as I do, people keep messing up after they feel bad about what they've done. If feeling bad about what you've done was the key, everybody would be conquerors. Because usually what happens, the pattern that usually happens, is we mess up, we feel bad, mess up again, feel worse, mess up again, feel even worse, finally mess up so many times where we stop even feeling anything and just say, well, I guess I'm never going to conquer this. And keep messing up. Well, there's only one thing that breaks that pattern, and that is when we mess up, regardless of how we feel, we say, Lord, we've got a faithful and a merciful high priest. We need you in things pertaining to God. Because right now we just pertain to flesh. That's why we keep messing up. So in all things, 
That means your things too. That means your troubles. That means your situations. That means all the stuff that you experience. That means whether it's things pertaining to you individually or things pertaining to your family or whatever it is. In all things, he's a faithful and merciful high priest. He's there to administer the things which are of God. And folks, there is nothing that the Bible says God is more than merciful. It says his mercies are new every morning. It says his mercy endures forever. His mercy is always there. Paul uses this as a, as a stepping stone. And you know as well as I do that it wasn't written in chapter and verse. He uses this as a stepping stone to now start talking about number one on their list where the high priest is concerned, and that is Melchizedek. He starts talking about Levi. He starts talking about Aaron. He winds up talking about Melchizedek. He deconstructs everything that they think that things are supposed to work and shows how Jesus fulfilled every bit of it. And it all comes down to Jesus or Christ crucified. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for caring about us, to making Jesus to be like us. Lord Jesus, we're delighted that you were our captain who went before us to open the door of salvation to us. Consequently, You've brought us into glory. You've made us heirs of salvation. And you're not ashamed to call us brethren. What a blessing, Lord, that you're not ashamed of us. Even though we're sometimes ashamed of ourselves. You're not ashamed to call us brethren, kinsmen, family. Seeing from before the time began, the things that we'd do wrong, the mistakes that we'd make, you chose to make us part of your family because you're not ashamed of us. We love you, Lord. We ask you to strengthen us. Show us what you've already done for us and who we are in Christ that will make us worthy, enable us to walk worthy of such a great salvation. Thank you, Father for who you've made us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.